Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, one of my favorite pastors is a guy by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. In fact, I liked him so much that my son, my first son, is named Campbell. His name is actually Campbell David Rao, and he's named not after me, but after the two men who were pastors in the Westminster pulpit, uh, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones and Dr. G. Campbell Morgan. Okay, there's enough history for you about my family. Dr. Morgan had four sons, and each one of his sons became a pastor. One day they had friends over to the house, and uh, they were in the parlor hanging out and having a time of fellowship. And the friend very inquisitively asked Howard, one of the sons, he said, and he wanted to put him on the spot, by the way. He said, Howard, who's the best preacher in your family? And without hesitation, without blinking his eye, he looked directly at him and said, Mother. (laughs) Anna Jarvis was the one who first came up with the idea of Mother's Day here in America. In fact, it was founded, really, the seminal beginnings were on May 10th, 1908, when she, along with a group of friends who came to memorialize her mom, gave a carnation to each person who showed up. Well, it became so popular that it was adopted by Congress, and eventually President Woodrow Wilson proclaimed that the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day, and he established it as, quote, he says, as a time for public expression for our love and reverence for mothers in our country. In fact, in many churches today, it is still a a tradition to give a carnation, a white one, to those whose mother has gone on, and a red one to those whose mother's still around. In fact, I heard a story of a couple little boys who had a limited budget, as little boys always do. But they knew that Mother's Day was a day to go out and give flowers to their mom. So they went to the store and they looked around and uh, all they were able to afford was this sort of little scrawny plant. So on Mother's Day, they presented it to mom and, and finally the oldest one piped up and said, Look, mom, I know it's not much, but you should have seen the one that we wanted to get you. I mean, it was beautiful. It had lots of flowers all over it. It had a beautiful yellow ribbon that said, Rest in Peace. And we knew that you would like it because you're always asking for a little peace so that you can get some rest. (laughs) One mother, mother of um, three notoriously unruly kids, was asked whether or not she would have children again. If she had it to do all over again, would she? And she said, without any hesitation, yes, I would. I would just have different children. Now, it must be noted that Mother's Day is not a biblical holiday. It does, however, give us an opportunity to honor God by spotlighting one of His creatures, and she is called woman. There would be no wives without women. There will be no mothers without women. In fact, marriage and motherhood are roles that 
provide for us a peek into the unique nature and attributes we often see in women. Now, I want to say this for those of you who are listening with your heart right on your sleeve, that Mother's Day can be a very hard weekend, especially for those of you who have been unable to have children. And in fact, it took everything you had to come to church tonight. But let me just say to you that most of this message has been planned around someone in your position. And so we want to walk very tenderly around that fact. But I I, I must point out here that there is hope and there is a plan that I have, and rather God has a plan, and I pray that it brings you much joy today. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And our text tonight will be found in verse 5, but um, we can do just a little bit. um, We'll back up just a little bit and look at verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, because being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, And I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which was in you through the laying on of hands of my hands. Genuine faith. It is part nature and nurture. The question that we have to ask when we're thinking about someone like Timothy is how is a person transformed from an immature child to a godly adult. Keep your finger here in 2 Timothy and turn with me to Psalms. Right in the middle of your Bible. We'll look at Psalm 1. And with the first three verses, these words, I think, exemplify a man like Timothy. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, he shall prosper. Now, is his growth or our personal growth a product of nature or nurture? It's an age-old debate, and I would tell you that on the web there are plenty of opinions out there, and it goes something simple like this. Is it a part of the genetic makeup of the person that destines them to be either an alcoholic or a rageaholic or nice or mean, or is it actually the nurture or the environment that they're raised in? And I'll tell you, for the Christian, and what I understand here in this passage of Scripture, is that it is both. I like potatoes. I don't know why. They're nice, starchy. In fact, my wife made one of my favorite meals last night, green beans, potato with just a little bit of bacon in there. 
However, potatoes take some time to grow. You know, when you plan for a meal of potatoes, you don't say, give me just a minute. I'm going to go plant some seeds, potato seeds, and some buds, and I'll be back. We should have dinner in the next few hours. If you're going to have a dinner of potatoes and you're going to eat the ones that you've planted, you better plan for a long time ahead. During the stretches of waiting for a plant to emerge out of the soil, there is a time of cultivating and weeding and nurturing of the seeds of that plant. Let's look at the fruit of growth. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Notice Timothy's genuine faith. He said, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Here's some interesting facts to note about Timothy. You don't have to turn there, but over in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, we are told some very interesting things about this young man. Acts chapter 16, verse 1, he says that, When he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but her father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were there in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were there in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek." Here's the thing we notice about young Timothy. First that we notice is that he was marked as a disciple. That is, when you walked into a crowd of people, it was easy to see that this kid had his scroll open or his Bible open, and he was there at the study, prepared, ready to receive. In fact, if anyone asks, who is that kid? You'll say, well, you know, he's a disciple of the Lord. He's a learner in the faith. Second we notice in verse 1 is that He was born to a Jewish mother and a Greek father, which was very interesting in his day, that he had a mixed lineage. It wasn't the perfect case scenario in his world. Third thing that we notice about him in this passage is that he was a man of good reputation. You know, it's easy to find a lot of men, but it's hard to find a man of good reputation. And if you are a man, you know how hard it is to keep a good reputation. And then we also notice in verse 3 is that he was chosen for the ministry by Paul. And then also in verse 3, we notice that he was willing to self-sacrifice and make sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. As a young man, he was willing to be circumcised because everyone knew that his dad was a Greek and that he had probably been circumcised. Even though that he was free in the Lord and there was no actual real need spiritually, he would do so for the sake of the body. What a superstar this kid was. You know, this is the kind of kid that you hope for in your life. You have hopes and aspirations that your child will have a great reputation in the community. But what made him different from the rest of the kids in his world? The answer is the quality of his faith. The word that is used here for genuine faith literally is a combination of a couple of words. There's a negative prefix connected with hypocrite. He was not a hypocrite. That's literally what it means. It means that his life and his faith was very genuine, open, and real. 
One of the things that it's neat to note about genuine faith is that genuine faith that is seen comes from an abiding, deep knowledge of God. It is a knowledge that knows that it knows. It is a visible faith. It's easy to recognize. Everybody saw it on Timothy. Genuine faith is not only visible, but it's a tested faith. It has been tested and tried by the storms of life. You know, it's been said very well that a faith that goes untested is no faith at all. It's only when it's actually been tested and tried that it comes through as real, viable, true faith in God. And then his genuine faith was an honorable faith. It was sincere and without hypocrisy. Sincerity and without hypocrisy, a lack of hypocrisy, are attributes that are needed right now in our world, especially in Christianity, especially Christianity under fire. But I will tell you, it is a hard attribute to maintain throughout a lifetime. It is so easy for us as believers to sort of learn some of the language, learn some of the moves, learn how to act like a Christian, sort of fit into the crowd, and then begin to float along with the rest of the fish going down the river. But that is not, my friends, is not necessarily genuine faith. Genuine faith maintains a lack of hypocrisy in pure sincerity. Genuine faith doesn't just happen. It's the product of nature and nurture. Let's observe the method, the process of growth. Back to our verse. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded is in you also. Genuine faith was first seen in Grandma Lois and Mother Eunice. The word there for dwelt is enoikeo, which means that this faith was living inside in them first. It was first seen in Grandma and Mama. Eunice and Lois were probably products of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 13. They went through the particular area of Galatia and these young, these women, Jewish women, probably gave their lives to the Lord upon hearing the gospel. But then you have young Timothy who also was given the gospel and he responded as well. Godly fruit produces good seed. I read an article this week about fruit and seeds. I'd like to share it with you. It says in this article, a seed must somehow arrive at a location and be there for a time favorable for germination and growth. Those properties or attributes that promote the movement to the next generation away from the parent plant may involve the fruit more so than the seeds themselves. The function of a seed is one of serving as a delaying mechanism, a way for the new generation to suspend its growth and allow time for dispersal to occur or to survive harsh, unfavorable conditions of cold or dryness or both. In many, 
If not most cases, each plant species achieves success in finding ideal locations for placement of its seeds through the basic approach of producing numerous seeds. All of that gobbledygook to say this. If you have a good plant and a seed is growing in there and the, and the tree grows, if it's a fruit-bearing plant, it produces seeds and those seeds go out. And so it may have started first in grandma and in mother, but the fruit of their lives actually produced more seed of the gospel that eventually was received by Timothy and For successive generations, Christianity has been passed on and on and on. Now note, this whole process was first seen, yes, in grandma and mom. But it points, most importantly, to that hidden work of our Lord, the source of the seed. Keep your finger here, and I'm going to... Go ahead and read to you. If you want to flip over, it's fine. But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, we read these words. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, the word there is sperma, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And this points us to a very simple but powerful truth. Salvation is of God's will and God's choosing, period. All the person, every person who has ever come to Christ has come to Christ because there was a seed somewhere, the seed of the Word of God planted in their life and it began to grow. But the real work happens in the dark recesses of the heart and mind of that person. In Thompson and Morgan's successful seed raising guide, I read these words. A seed is an embryo plant and contains within itself virtually all the material and energy to start off a new plant. To get the most of one seed, it's needful to understand a little about their needs so that just the right conditions can be given for successful growth. And here's the growth that we see privately in the heart of man. One of the most usual causes of failure with seeds is Sowing it too deeply, a seed has only enough food within itself for a limited period of growth, and a tiny seed sowed too deeply soon expends all that energy and dies before it can reach the surface. Our seed guide, therefore, states that optimum depth at which each type of seed should be sown. Another cause is too much watering or lack thereof. But God is the one who takes those little seeds of the gospel, plants them in the heart, and he causes them to grow. But at some point, that little seed struggling through finally reaches the top of the earth out of the darkness into the light and the warmth of the fresh air, and it begins to live as a plant. Just like the embryo of a child. It starts out as a small cell, but in nine months it grows to the point to where it is able now to leave the mother's body and grow and come out into the rest of the world. But it is that point where a critical thing happens. No longer is that child in the body of the mom, no longer is that seed in the ground, but now it is exposed to the world and becomes helpless in many respects and needs the help and nurture of others. 
It should be pointed out that both the plant and the baby needs lots of care and nurture in order to grow to maturity. 2 Timothy, back in chapter 1, verse 5. He said, I call to remembrance through your genuine faith that was in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded it is in you also. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us what Eunice and Lois did. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15. But you must continue, speaking to Timothy, in the things which you have learned and heard and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. In an article by Dr. Henry Cloud and John Townsend, They were stating what a child really needs from its mother. Concerning the issue of nurture, they quote Webster's Dictionary. They say, Webster says that nurture is to feed or nourish. They go on to say that a mother's nurture is fuel to the soul. Good mothers pour care into the souls of their children, much like the sunlight and water pour nutrients on a plant. Our souls flourish when we're being nurtured and cared for. We grow, develop, and change according to the way we were designed. Without nurture, we wither. The failure to thrive syndrome and many other childhood problems are directly related to a lack of nurture. In some cases, institutionalized babies have even died from maternal deprivation and lack of nurture. It's true. Right when that plant comes up, right when that baby comes out, it is absolutely vulnerable and it takes the work of not only a mother, but it takes the work of family and friends to care and water and feed and nurture its growth. I'd read an article about Renee Spitz who was a caretaker in an orphanage in South Africa. Spitz observed and recorded what happened to 97 children who were deprived of emotional and physical contact with others. It was because of a lack of funds, not a lack of heart, that the orphanage could not care for each child properly. Each child was given their food. They were cared for in that way, but they did not have time to have the interaction and relationship that was normally given to an infant. These, child were, these children were aged three months to three years. <clears throat> now, it's interesting what happened here. After three months, many of them showed signs of abnormality. Besides a loss of appetite and being able to, unable to sleep, many of the children lay with vacant expressions in their eyes. And after five months, serious deterioration set in. They lay whimpering, she said, with troubled and twisted faces. Often when the doctor and nurse would pick up one of these infants, they would scream in terror. Twenty-seven, almost one-third of the children died in the first year. Not from a lack of food or health care, but they died from a lack of touch and emotional nurture. Because of this, seven more died the second year. Only 21 of the 97 survived, most of them suffering psychological damage. Now, I didn't say this to depress you. It's not my purpose. But to amplify the fact that 
wherever you see growth, you see nurture. And that is one of the attributes of a mom. I had a question this week for my family. And here's the question. You may want to ask it later on tonight. What's the most important thing a mother does? Well, my son Campbell, age nine, replied with this. He said, loving us, caring for us. Um, Examples of this, he said, are when she feeds us and when she helps us. Like a good boy, soon-to-be man, he loves food. Madeline, my oldest daughter, age 13, said, Moms have a caring nature and sensitivity toward others. They comfort us when we are down or scared. She takes us places, hence the minivan. Emily, my second daughter, age 12, said, Moms take care of the family by helping the kids and rewarding them sometimes. But the most important thing a mother does is that she loves the Lord. Well, my son, Hudson, age five, always comes up with the most interesting of the comments. I asked him, and I had to ask him twice. I said, what is the most important thing mom does? And his response was, I do what she says. (laughs) I said, you don't understand, son. What's the most important thing that she does? I do what she says. And I said, no, what does mom do for you? And he replied, oh, nothing, and then just ran off. (laughs) Carly, my spouse, her age, somewhere in the mid-twenties, I lost count. (laughs) She said the most important thing for a mom is spending time and getting to know my children. And second thing was discipline and training them. Pauline Rao, my mom, her age, heavenly at this point, she said to me on the phone, she said, Dave, loving your children and teaching them in the admonition of the Lord is the most important thing a mom can do. Training them to follow Christ. It's important to note here that loving and nurture is not restricted to motherhood. I said it before and I'll repeat it. But it is at the heart of the best attributes that we find in women. We were at a staff picnic the other day and a good friend of mine, two of them, husband and wife, came to the picnic. And at this point in their life, they don't have any physical children of their own. However, they brought their two chihuahuas. Miss Daisy, Daisy Lou, and Lola. And Daisy Lou and Lola had two of the cutest little dresses that you could ever imagine. And their mom just sort of let them run around and they came and sat down next to her. And one of them, whose legs were getting a little stiff, sort of set her leg out and sat very beautifully and nice. And everyone there at the, at the uh, barbecue recognized how cute and polite they were. But they got that way from nurture. In fact, I want to notice something about you women. This is not a cut down. In fact, this is one of the biggest compliments I can give you. From gardening to nursing to every imaginable way of caring for anything that has life, you will find the heart of a woman. Now, does that mean that men cannot love and care for life? No. 
But there is a unique thing about you ladies that gives us example and admonishes us to love life more than any other creature. Here's an example. I like to watch the cooking channel. It just has food. Moment after moment after moment. Great chef after dessert. And it's just, it's, it's really the best of television. <laughs> well, a lot of the great chefs are men. But I'll tell you something about, a man can learn how to cook. It's not relegated to a woman or just to a man. But I've noticed something about when men cook and women cook. When men cook, here's the guy's response. He throws a piece of steak at you and says, All right, buddy, sink your teeth into that. Tell me if you've had anything better than that in your life. (laughs) It's an accomplishment. He's done something great. Look, I did something without burning it to death. But the woman, though she may be proud of how it tastes, her biggest response is, eat your food. You're going to shrivel up. You're eating nothing these days. I'm afraid for you. You need to be eating your green beans. What are you doing? There's always this sense of nurture and care and love. And women, I appreciate that about you. The fact that so many more of you are in nursing is no surprise to me. It is just the natural nature and the best part of women that we see in this world. Jesus recognizes this attribute when in Matthew chapter 23 verse 37 he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Paul recognizes this also in First Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. This attribute of nurturing may be more readily seen in women, but it stands as an example of love For every believer. For all of us. It is not just in your camp that nurture must take place. It is an example for everyone. All right, the question arises, where do we go from here? Well, it seems obvious, those of us who are parents, what we're supposed to do. What we're supposed to do is to love and nurture our kids. In fact, you're probably thinking right now, moms, man... I was really hard on those kids before I dropped them off at the kids' ministry. I can't believe the things I said to them. I need to go nurture them right now. But for some of us who aren't raising children who are at home, we have a question before us, and here's the answer. Raise children in the Lord. As Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he said, To Timothy... My true son in the faith. A true son in the faith. In the faith, in the Christian belief, adoption is not only an option, it is the plan. It is the plan for the believer. 
You may be thinking, you know what, Dave, we don't have any kids at home, but let me tell you right now, as far as we know, Paul didn't either. But he was a part of a team that raised Timothy. In fact, even though Timothy had an earthly dad, Paul very clearly stated, Timothy, my son in the faith, I love you as a son. I pour my life out for you and nourish you as my son. You belong to me. Question is, where do you find these people? Well, first of all, you share the gospel with them and then keep your eyes open. You know, Christians come in all shapes and sizes. Just look around in the world. Now, let me throw a couple of scenarios out there for you just to to rattle you. Imagine if you were in a busy street and you looked over and you saw a baby right on the street corner by itself. What would you do? Well, you'd slam on the brakes, you'd pull over, you'd say, what? who let this baby sitting out here right on the street? It could be run over. Where's its parents? Where's its mother? You would be outraged. Or maybe if you saw a little girl walking down a dark alley by herself, you'd say, what is she doing there by herself? Come here. Let me take your hand. Let me help find you shelter. What is your name? Or maybe if you saw a teenager out too late, you might say, what's he doing out so late? Or maybe a brother who's lonely. Believers come in all shapes and sizes, as I mentioned. Some of them are brand new. Some of them are born right in front of you as they give their life to Christ. But you would never think of leaving a baby on a street corner. And you and I should never think of leaving young believers on the street corner of this world by themselves. There should be a sense of outrage. There should be a sense of nurture that cries out to them that says, Come on in, honey. You're going to come with me and I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to help grow you. You'd never leave a little kid in a dark alley. And yet there are so many believers who are left open to pray in this world who definitely need your help and my help. Timothy's life was a life that was built by God, Grandma, Mama, and Paul. All of them raised him to be a godly man. And I can tell you that my life has been filled with people who have spiritually adopted me and continue to this day to nurture my faith. I am a product of the Lord, first of all, but their blood, sweat, tears, and prayers, all of this in my spiritual family. My dad died when I was eight years old. Not much chance to get to know him. And it was just me and my mom. My older brothers and sisters had just left. And I thought, what am I going to do? And throughout my life, I clung to men who would look at me for just a moment and go, Come on over here, Ralph. I'll help you out. From a basketball coach to later on in life to pastors and spiritual leaders and those who came alongside and said, I will help you out. And to this day, they are the part of my fabric and my family, and I lean upon them. I can't really give much credit to my earthly father, even though I love to. Most of the credit in my life goes to my spiritual family who has cared for me, and I am a product of their work. 
How does genuine faith grow? Love and nurture. As we close, my hope for you is this. My hope for you and for me is that when we get to heaven, we have a big spiritual family. And my hope is that you and I go into heaven with many spiritual children. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.